Now your previous novel. Yes. Wildcat. Right. Not a success. Why? Well, Wildcat was written in a kind of obsolete vernacular. Welcome to Season 2 of How Would Lubitsch Do It, a podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's April 1921, and today Bram Reuter and Will Ross join us to discuss The Wildcat. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, or just to say hi. Hello everyone! The Wildcat is a chaotic movie, so we're going to have a chaotic episode. Here with us are Will Ross and Bram Reuter, former guests. They need no introduction. Hello, friends. All true. I mean, come on, introduce us. We do <laughs> Bram, need introductions. you make movies. Will, you yes. also make movies. There you go. You're filmmakers. <laughs> Unlike myself, who just talks about them. Single-digit people listen. So yeah, The Wildcat. We've all watched it within the past 48 hours, I think. This film is the object of a few mixed feelings because on one hand it's this oasis in the desert right we've just gone through Sumeroon and Annabullin two movies that I do not give two shakes of a lamb's tail about I don't know if I don't I don't like those movies I don't think they're very good The Wildcat though is among I think the most inventive films that Ernst Lubitsch ever made I think not controversial to say it's absolutely loopy we need to talk about the aspect ratios in this movie the production design is unbelievable the Energy in it is remarkable. It's a satire about militarism made in Weimar, Germany, which is an incredibly interesting context in which to make a satire of militarism. It was a box office bomb, and Lubitsch chalked that up to the whole satire of militarism in the interwar period thing. You know, it makes sense. It's kind of one of those films that was forgotten for a while and has been, among certain very small circles, reclaimed as a kind of a lost... Some people think it's great. Other people don't. I think it's fascinating. What did you two think of it? Bram, do you want to go first? Because you gestured visually. <laughs> so I finished it and I've been feeling very loopy today. And this movie is probably the best visual uh, equivalent of being loopy because I don't know, it just kind of goes and it's having so much fun with the aspect ratios, as she said, with the sets, as she said, it goes completely nuts. It hardly cares what it's trying to say. In, or maybe I don't care what it's trying to say because it looks so goddamn beautiful. But yeah, it was mesmerized throughout, even when it is ultimately, as you said, not very satisfying as a whole, but it makes up for it in visuals. Yeah, I love the energy of the thing, and I love its commitment to loopiness and ridiculousness and characters who are on the precipice of not caring about anything at all at any given time. And I love that it's trying weird shit visually. And production design-wise, I'd say it's an unmitigated success almost in that realm. But aspect ratio-wise, you know, to be completely <laughs> honest, this thing drove me absolutely up the wall. Like I, <laughs> like, I had a good time watching this. It's pretty rare that I have a bad time watching a movie. But the aspect ratio is a concept which I was expecting to, at the very least, really enjoy a lot. Very quickly moved into annoying territory for me which sullied a lot of my early experience with the film. And that dissipated a bit as the film went on. And I started to enjoy it a bit more. I think it's 
not a coincidence that it also uses less of that weird vignetting and the gags also, I think, get better as the movie goes along. But, you know, on the whole, it's, yeah, as you said, Devin, it's having not seen all Lubitsch's film, it's probably Lubitsch's most formally out there film. Probably. Probably. It's up there with the doll, I think. Yeah. As far as films that are just, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, but uh, you can make the argument for the production design, I guess, but I certainly wouldn't call it his most formally ambitious film because a lot of its form seems less a matter of ambition and more a matter of a whim. That's a good, it's formally whimsical, right? But I mean, how do we define ambition? Right. <laughs> this is what you come to the podcast for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is Devin Scott's podcast on ambition. We're here yeah. talking about with three uh, venture capitalists. No, I think that what is ambition if not having a, a different aspect ratio with every frame and filling it with the most out there production design you can do and thousands of extras, especially extras that have all been blocked in a very specific, completely inhuman way where they seem to work on like 80s top down video game movement where you can only move on right angles. <laughs> that's that's ambition if I ever saw it. But what is it about the uh, aspect ratio shifts that really annoys you, Will? I think it's a matter of it's not a lack of intent behind how it's done. It's a matter of a lack of unity in its effect. Yes, people frequently move, are blocked within unusual angles and unusual ways relative to the vignetting, but often they're not. Oftentimes, the blocking within the vignetting feels arbitrary. Furthermore, a lot of the time, these aspect ratios don't obviously lend themselves to good compositions, and so we don't really get especially good compositions. A big part of me wonders if a lot of the weird aspect ratios are motivated by the exteriors because so much of them are set in the snow. And maybe Lubitsch didn't want to make the film appear too stark in these snowbound scenes, right? So that's possible. But the more unusual the aspect ratio shifts get, I think the more spotty the framing gets. There's two central issues, like two specific central issues I want to talk about. One is a lot of the matting. It's weird aspect ratios. It's not just that it's different aspect ratios, dear listener. It's that it's very specific matting, right? Like yeah, you have like a squiggly line going left, squiggly line going right. You have like a couple times the jaws of teeth. You know, it's all over the place. Circles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's not enough to say it's different aspect ratios, right? Because you can say something is a one-to-one -one aspect ratio, and that can mean either a perfect square or a perfect circle, right? It's not just that. It's like there are circles, there are rectangles, but like there's often, yeah, squiggles. I think there's triangles, there's little arches. So the different aspect ratios are matted differently. It's important to say. And often these mats, meaning the area of the frame that's black on the outside, like you two said, is squiggly, right? Or wavy. So it kind of goes in, out, in, out, in, out. Like if you imagine like the kind of stereotypical shape of a flower, it's kind of that kind of shape a lot of the time. That's like an example. They do this often. And the thing is that to me, that just doesn't like not only is it like other than literally it's kind of loopy, it just doesn't lend itself to purposeful compositions in my mind. Literally, when it's going in and out and in and out, it's drawing extra attention to the negative space of the frame right? Because every time it goes in, there's more negative space. And every time it goes out, then there's this little outcropping of visual data within the shot that more often than not doesn't actually serve much of a purpose. It's just an unnecessary focal point. So that's one thing, right? My other like specific main complaint also has to do with negative space, which is just very like this is not very conducive usually to montage. A lot of the time these shots cut 
And there's not a lot of rhyme or reason to, as far as I could make out, to how one of these shots and its matting and aspect ratio interacts with the next one. Sometimes there is, and it works well, but sometimes it's just feels very much like it was just determined on an individual shot by shot basis without much consideration for the edit. And as a result, we get even more attention drawn to the negative space. Because if I cut from a square to a circle to a triangle, then there's going to be different areas of negative space that appear over the last one, right? So like, the obvious example is that if I cut to a narrower aspect ratio than the wider one, then we suddenly become very aware of like those black bars. And that's usually not a huge problem when it's an aspect ratio change that happens occasionally. But when it's happening shot by shot by shot, it becomes visually distracting, which I think is a liability for a film that's like really heavily based on gags and kind of the visual loopiness actually within the frame. My attention gets drawn too much to the outer realms of the frame. It was just frustrating for me, right? It's a frustrating movie in that sense, because when I like kind of cut my hand into a circle and put it over my eye and watch this thing with narrowest vignetting possible, it's arguably a better movie. <laughs> But even that's not true because like when the framing's just like a plain old like 1.37 to 1 aspect ratio rectangle, the movie looks great. <laughs> it's a really well shot film when that happens, usually in interiors. And like the production design helps that. But it also just even in the exteriors, the framing just always feels more purposeful. It feels more unified. And yeah. All right, Brom, what do you think? Uh, bollocks. No, I'm, I'm, uh, no, no, no. I, I definitely agree in a sense where I was also trying to figure out, it's like, okay, it's a circle now. What could that mean? Or what does the rectangle mean? Is there any consistency in its usage? And about like 20 minutes in, I realized that there wasn't anything to it, that it was just simply playing around with shapes. <laughs> yeah. And then I kind of like started to let that happen. And was much happier for it because I don't think that it is much more than Lubitsch looking at this. And I'm filling in a lot of things that I don't know now. So this is all hat canon, I guess. For me, it was a very playful film that tried something else for the sake of being playful and trying something else to its detriment in certain regards. And also it almost felt like proposal. What if films are this? <laughs> and I always like when films do that, when it's just like, what if it doesn't have to work at all because it's not a car? So it can just be this thing of this, like, we had this film and I did all these matte things and it kind of works sometimes and it kind of doesn't. But what do you think? And to that, I would say, Ernst, nice. I like it. I would, you know, side with Will saying that could be a little bit more purposeful, you know, could be a little bit more thought through maybe. But on the other end, I really enjoy the differentness of using these mats. And also it, it creates these weird things because I was just thinking you were talking about geographical. So Alexis and Rishka are like in their in their own corner, sad in their new marriages, you know, that they signed up for and they kind of wanted to be together. So they're both like rolling and I think Alexis is drunk and Rishka is just kind of like rolling through the snow. And you have no idea how far away they are from each other because there's no establishing geography, basically. And suddenly they like Alexis, I think, rolls down a hill and suddenly he rolls into the frame of the other person. And I do think that the, you know, the circles and the mats kind of work with the abstraction of like that geography, which really worked in this case for, you know, this bit where suddenly they're together, even though that they seem to be very far apart from each other. This also has a lot to do with the snow, of course, which is a character onto itself, I would say. I think for me, it's I respond to all the formal decisions in two ways, right? One is that, yeah, I mean, 
the movie is, I think you put it well, Brom, the movie is kind of a proposal for what if movies were this and not the thing they are. And maybe an argument against the inherent usefulness of this changing aspect ratio, changing frame shape, you can call it. But at the same time, I was never not delighted by the cojones of the decisions yeah. like the I was never not delighted as like a formal enthusiast for oh my god they're going for it they're doing it <laughs> and regardless of whether it works that's its own question no one really cares about whether it works let's be real I was constantly delighted by the decisions and I think that runs through the whole film right I mean I should probably specify here that the film is a romantic comedy between a lieutenant in the army of nearby Pifkiniero which is great it's a you know a small fortress <laughs> in the Bavarian Alps are filmed in the Bavarian Alps, but obviously it's in Lubitsch land. It is nearby Pifkiniero. That is the name. Quote, yes. nearby Pifkiniero, which is a place that is nearby Pifkiniero. That is the actual name of the place. It's, it's called nearby. So it's a place that only exists in relation to another place, which is delightful. Polonegri plays the titular mountain, the wildcat, meaning that she's part of this, you know, kind of outlaw, you can call it like barbarian band of mountain dwellers. And... Even that, like as a semi-Romeo and Juliet setup, that's great. I like it. But it's in all the little mechanical details where the film is, I don't think it's well designed. So aside from the formal stuff, you have, you know, the lead couple, like the Alexis, he's like the most rakish, lubish rake ever. Like my favorite scene in the whole film, it's the one introducing him where he just has thousands of women mobbing him. It's like the scene from A Hard Day's Night or Austin Powers just blown up even further. And then you have that wonderful scene where you have the goodbye daddy where all his offspring, his hundreds of offspring. <laughs> Say goodbye to him, which I think is an absolute good. <laughs> that scene has no issues at all. I love that scene to bits. Like, man, got but around. Let's say. Uh... Boy, did he ever. And then they let out the rats, the mice. Oh, the yeah, mice yeah, 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 yeah. The dozens of mice to scare away the lady. It's amazing. But his character is this completely uninteresting dupus. In fact, in a weird way, his character does not fit the person we're introduced to. You know, he's supposed to be this rakish guy, and then he's just this almost like he resembles the Lubitsch idiot more than anyone else. Like the character played by, I forget his name, but he's a recurring character in like the Oyster Princess and Romeo and Juliet in the Snow. Just kind of this like airhead, right? Who's usually played as the other guy, not the romantic lead. He's not like a, a rake with agency. He's a guy who seems completely unself-aware of his pull on, in this case, women. And so that character, for example, just feels poorly designed, despite the fact that the premise his character is put into is so fun, in my opinion, at least. Yeah, like I thought about this as well. And maybe I'm playing devil's advocate at this point, but I kind of started to enjoy the idea of this, like he's introduced as this like dashing lieutenant. And then you see him in the frame for the first time. And he's just kind of like you said, he's kind of like a doofus and he doesn't have the classic dashing thing about him. And he has a sliminess over him in certain ways. So he's absolutely the opposite of how he's being cast. So he's basically against type, I guess. And I just started to enjoy the idea of, you know, everyone fawning over this, like, very mediocre guy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he is an Austin Powers figure, you know. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. That's what whole Austin Powers is. I like that reference there. But I kind of started enjoying it because I was, you know, he's being set up and they get the letter. It's like, oh, you need to be hard on him. He's this dashing young guy. And then you see him and it's just like, yeah. It's like a mediocre guy in his 30s, you know, just standing there being surrounded <laughs> yeah. by his offspring and his all his wives and whatever. And that by itself just became very funny. I wish they would do more with that because eventually there's only two love interests at that point. There should be hundreds. Hundreds. 
Yeah, exactly. It should have been it should have yeah. been hundreds. Exactly. You would go to a new place and there's more and we see how what we saw him come from actually happened and how that could happen and everyone just fawning over this guy. It's kind of like that scene in Step Brothers where I think Will Ferrell starts. I've yet to watch all the way through. Oh, okay. Well, I love Step Brothers. But there's this one scene where Will Ferrell starts singing and he's very nervous about it. And his singing is very, it's not great, but then everyone constantly refers to it as if he has the voice of an angel and i i like that bit where you could clearly see is like no this singing is not special yet everyone starts acting like it mm-hmm. is very special and i thought that they were gonna roll more with that besides the beginning or maybe beauty standards have changed in the past hundred years you know who knows dental standards have improved. <laughs> i didn't want to be mean Devin. it's uh... <laughs> his toothy smile got me every time but yeah yeah I totally agree. I think it's less. You agree you know, that I, his teeth are really terrible, right? I agree <laughs> that every that there's different kinds of beauty, um, but <laughs> some involve rot. Yeah, I mean, some involve root canals. Go on, sorry. It's true, but no, I disagree with you a little bit, Devin. How dare you? In that, like, I don't think it's a function of poor character design per se. As much as like it not feeling fully developed. And I'm totally with that. Like to me, it's kind of a function of how the movie is satirizing militarism, right? Which is the idea of this thing being culturally often seen as like this very attractive and dashing and admirable quality militarism, like as a quality, as personified by Alexis, when in fact, like there's not actually a lot of underlying intelligence or depth to it. I think that's kind of what it's going for. But like, as far as how that all shakes out with the central, if you want to call it tragedy of the romance angle of the film, you know, I I don't know how well the film ultimately self resolves its own ideology. But I, I can see kind of hints of what it's stabbing towards. I mean, to some extent, this feels like a film that needs like, two or three years to be made, being made by someone who's been making like multiple films every year. (laughs) You can't make three films in a year, I think, and be able to have a film with constantly shifting vignettes and aspect ratios and have every single one of those feel motivated. Or like a lot of these like kind of intricate ideological ideas that are being expressed in this pseudo fantasy satire setting. And it's so hard to do that and have them all come through coherently, right? And this is to some extent, you know, I'm not trying to sound like you can't make good movies when you're making five movies a year, but I think it does speak to why so much classical era filmmaking and silent era filmmaking is done by directors who just hone their craft in a very specific set of story beats and framing conventions and just got really, really good at those by doing them on a constant basis so that you could get someone who makes a movie every year and there's a pretty good chance that one of those movies is going to turn out a masterpiece, right? With the arguable byproduct of you know, a reduced formal invention. It's the same thing as anything, right? Like doing something totally new and having it like just work straight through. It just takes a lot of time. That's all I'm saying. I think it's interesting too, the ways in which almost, I mean, this is, I'm speaking with really unearned hindsight as far as the podcast goes, because I've now seen all the films. This is our last recording of the season. Hurrah. The next film is going to be Loves the Pharaoh. And suddenly he's in a dark studio. This is our last UFA film, actually, this film. Soon we're going to be the Americans are going to come in with all their dollars with Loves the Pharaoh. But in this film, I'm really starting to feel some of the limitations of the language 
of Berlin film visuals circa 1920. For example, the lighting by Theodore Sparkle. I like his work quite a lot, but here is where I'm like, okay, the rigor Lubitsch is putting into his production design, the invention of all these elements that we see here in the mise-en-scene isn't quite reflected by, for example, the lighting, which is still this kind of, it's V lighting, meaning that you have like six sources on camera side, just basically front lighting the subject. There's no such thing as three-point lighting. Yeah, look at any shot in which interior a character is like standing near a wall. There'll be like four to eight shadows, right? All coming from camera side. That's just how you lit if you were in Weimar, Berlin. Oh shit, yeah, you're right. Wow. Before uh, dark studios became a thing. And I'm curious to know whether this film was initially intended to be tinted because it has that classic thing where the nighttime scenes are blatantly shot during the day and there's no attempt made to make them look like night optically. It's all just, we're going to tint it blue, right? And so there's scenes where you go from like night for night firework scenes to an interior scene to like, then suddenly pull an out in the broad sunlight. You're like, oh, is this the next day? And again, that's not fair of us because I really suspect this film was intended to be tinted, just like Loves the Pharaoh is, just like Anna Boleyn is, just like most of his films from this era are. And so there's an interesting kind of, this is the most I've ever felt Lubitsch really pushing against the limitations of almost just the toolkit he had at the time. And I'm curious to see, you know, I mean, this is an impossible thing because by being in Hollywood, he couldn't make something like this. But what if he had made this with like a disciplined Hollywood crew? And like more script drafts. <laughs> I mean, uh, you raise a really great point in terms of contextualizing this thing's form with things that we're not seeing, right? Like this restoration does derive from a print that was, as the restoration notes at the beginning of this version say, not an ideal print of the film in that the intertitles were not correct. They had to be newly created and restored from censor's notes that are still extant from the time. So we know that this print isn't like a reference print. And so... Yeah, like I think it's, as you said, it's likely that there's tinting. Would that change my impression of all the shifting aspect ratios and vignetting? And I think that's totally possible. And maybe that makes the film a lot better. So yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because it's always worth remembering that we're responding to the film in front of us, which is not always the film that Lubitsch made. Yeah, I don't think Lubitsch ever wanted to see, want you to see the tape at the top of the frame to stitch <laughs> things together because there are multiple times throughout this movie and also there's this weird thing going on sometimes in the print that shots seem lack of a better word like lower in the frame than they should be Mm -hmm. there seems Mm -hmm. to be information missing maybe this is from a later generation you know exactly misaligned it so there's all yeah so i mean uh, this is a drum we've beaten many times in the podcast so far of like everything we watch has to be watched with a grain of salt even the stuff that is tinted for example a lot of the time that is just i mean at the beginning of a lot of these there's specifically a disclaimer that says our tinting is based on some assumptions <laughs> right we are trying to recreate the artist's intent because all we know is maybe what color they used for like one shot that survived and tinted so we have to extrapolate from that so yeah it's all provisional what do we make of um, the narrative part of the film what do you think is this film classically <laughs> <laughs> i'm just kidding no um i think you read my mind Bram, because that's what i want to bring up next because i think the decision to make this because spoiler alert these two star-crossed lovers don't end up together in this one they don't die which is good but they don't end up together and they end up, you know, marrying someone in their own society, respectively. I don't think that's a good decision. For yeah. This movie. yeah. <laughs> I thought that was a bad. In fact, I mean, both times I watched it to me, that was always the note that struck sourest because I don't think the ending structured all that well. But I think most importantly, I just don't think it's supported by the entire tone of the rest of it. The film is so goofy. The film is so whimsical, as you said, Will, that to me, just having a, you know, a, a cold dose of reality at the end, it feels unearned at best. It also doesn't interface with what the movie's trying to 
or seems to be trying to say before that point. What is it trying to say? My general read, as someone who already said that I think the film isn't completely self-coherent ideologically, I think the closest I can get is that the film is trying to say that the idea of the military is this carefully constructed but ultimately absurd kind of patchwork of conformity that we've been conditioned to admire or feel attracted to or feel loyal to, and that it is no more or less valid or admirable than any other social structure, right? Which is why you see, you know, bandits who are rough and much less openly pretentious, but no less flawed as a society, as kind of the counterpoint. I think that's what the movie's generally getting at, which is To me, another reason why it feels so weird that it ends with these two, it resolves with them going back and ending up with people from their own societies. And the film even seems to be taking a fairly positive stance on their being reunited. It doesn't seem to register them as ending miserably, right? The movie ends on, I think it's best gag, where someone who's been spurned by Rishka, you know, her husband, who she left absolutely wailing, she comes back and he's literally crying a river of tears <laughs> mm-hmm. that's like carved a path through the snow. Yeah. Which is like, uh, it's a lovely image. It's ridiculous. It's really funny. And she comes in and she dries his eyes and the moment comes off. It's obviously funny, but like the final shot is like quite tender and you can read it as a bit emotionally ambivalent but i think it's uh generally she seems genuinely okay and satisfied with being with him i just can't quite see why the film is suddenly ending with a positive depiction of these stratified social relationships Mm -hmm. but that might be a, a product of me objecting to it not fitting to a reading i had of the prior film that isn't actually what the film was going for, right? Like, that's just like what I could read into the film up to that point. And if the ending contradicts that, maybe my reading is wrong. We're not exactly its target audience being people from 100 years later. It's true. (laughs) So (laughs) we come up with different expectations, and I think that's worth pointing out. Yeah. And setting aside the social commentary stuff for a second, like looking at it strictly as a narrative, I think it's worth, you know, looking at it a bit on literally its own terms, which is, as the opening title cards say, it is a grotesque in four acts. And this, you know, its description as a grotesque and its division into four acts does kind of speak to a self-conscious arbitrariness and maybe a sense that we're not meant to unify everything in our own minds, but just like kind of enjoy the film on a moment to moment basis that might be there. And because it works so moment to moment, the film is a kind of scene-to-scene experience in a way. And it's a bit of a mixed bag, but, you know, it has its ups and downs, right? Like, it has some really nice bits of spectacle between its production design and its crowd scenes. And it's got, like, some really fun gags, you know, some of them involving things like double exposure, some of them involving things like reverse footage. It's got a lot of fun stuff in it. And then sometimes it'll have a comedic moment that just kind of registers as broad actors kind of like mugging reaction, which I complained a little bit about mugging in the last episode I was on as well. Where is my treasure? Uh, So I don't (laughs) want to come off as just hating mugging. But I also like I can see when it's filling the joke hole, I feel like. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I got a little bit of that. I guess like the sum of overall my take is that narratively this feels like something that doesn't stand as a whole and maybe isn't really designed to. It's grotesque. It's asking you to not look at it as a perfect object. 
Yeah, narratively, it feels like a few scraps of paper to create a podium for Lubitsch's formalism, basically. I was wondering why the ending didn't really fully work in a narrative sense and when it started happening. And I definitely felt that they wrote themselves into a corner, like there had to be a resolution to the to the central, you know, conflict. Who is he going to choose or who is she going to choose or who is going to choose, basically, because Alexis and Rishka are in love, but, you know, they can't be together, blah, blah. So they have to go above and beyond in order to be together, like you said, like a Romeo and Juliet story. And then there is the uh, fortress commander's daughter, Lily. She is madly in love with Alexis and eventually they get married. And yeah, uh, Rishka somehow suddenly also needs to get married, according to her father. So someone from her band is just taken as like as 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 a and at first she's very happy. But she feels like she's something missing. And then, you know, she goes back to Alexis. And there is that moment where she realizes that it is not her milieu. Basically, that's how I read it. Like, she runs into Lily in the fortress while Alexis is, you know, there on a date, technically. And then suddenly this, like, realization hits her that she does not fit in the milieu and that Lily is a better fit for him if they keep to that milieu. So that's the moment when... Rishka decides, you know what, I'm going to be a brat, I'm going to be awful, and I'm going to make sure that he hates me so that he will feel less about like giving up his love for me and going for Lily, who's clearly much happier in that milieu. So there's kind of like a fatalism there that kind of works with the whole satire of militarism and, you know, hierarchies and where you stand in life and whatever. But yeah, I somehow feel that it is... Yeah, a very weighty thing to suddenly tack onto, as we discussed, a very Looney Tunes kind of film. Because sometimes it does feel like you're watching a Bugs Bunny cartoon, like, a few years before Bugs Bunny was invented. And then suddenly there's this, like, fatalism hanging over it, and these, like, heavy decisions that need to be made for characters. You know, like, suddenly these characters need to be characters, and before that they were just vessels for gags and the satire and the ideas and the stuff. Like, there was no... Not a lot of evidence for who they are as people. They are yeah, vessels for what the script tells them to do and all the formalistic elements. So then to suddenly tack on that ending that needs characters feels a little off. And I think that moment where she has that realization gives her a lot of depth, which is very interesting, but comes a little too late in this case for me. I don't know if you agree with this, but that was kind of my read on the whole thing. To kind of jump off your point a bit, a key ingredient missing here is that every single character in this is kind of a cipher. Not a single person in this film has anything resembling depth. I mean, neither did anyone in The Doll or The Oyster Princess, but those films did not present us with endings that kind of required us to see them as three-dimensional people. You know, The Oyster Princess, it's almost like the characters continue on on the trajectories that began the film that felt inevitable from the beginning. We always knew what, how it was going to end. As soon as you meet the prince, you're like, yeah, he's going to end up with Ozzy Oswalda. There's an inevitable path to that. But in this, there is a frustration of our expectations, right? And to succeed in that, I feel like one maybe is behooved to write those characters with the groundwork that makes that turn feel inevitable. And to me, it didn't, right? It also didn't feel like it was, I mean, there's also the expectation of other Lubitsch films bleeding into this, right? I mean, usually Lubitsch films are celebrations, at least the comedies are celebrations of characters who rotten against their societies and they usually get away with it, you know, with the exception of something like The Student Prince in Old Heidelberg, which is a comedy that also ends tragically. And yet, Throughout that, you're never really under the impression that this is going to work out. 
that's a case where there is a melancholy built in, but there's not a single hint of melancholy through most of this movie. It's all just so goofy. And that's my rant. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a movie, you know, it's got, <laughs> I don't share that. Resignation. I love this movie. It's, even though no, I'm, it's, I, I'm frustrated because I love so much of it. What I mean by it's a movie is not like it's completely unremarkable. It's like obviously remarkable in a lot of ways and in a lot of ways that you can like coherently express, right? Like what I'm trying to get across is like, this is a movie that exists on its own terms with its own vision. And clearly, to some extent or another, they made the movie that they were setting out to make, right? It's a movie. It's a movie that's worth watching. But it is, maybe this is a product of my own laziness, but it just feels like any attempt to tie it together and make sense of it, even to make sense of its contradictions, feels fruitless. It feels like it's pointless. It doesn't feel like it works. What my attitude presupposes is you don't need to make sense of it. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. Like I said, it's a grotesque, right? Like, to use its own term again, it's a grotesque. It's this kind of weird, misshapen object that resembles some things in some ways and not others, but is otherwise just this unique and willfully baffling object, right? And that's fine. And like, I think what I'm trying to express is that there is a better version of this grotesque that could be there, right? For every weird aspect ratio choice, like you'll have this like super tall shot where it's like this very tall rectangle and then a column of soldiers like just races through the frame. And it's like literally a column of soldiers moving through a column. It's just this like cute little pond. It's just like this immediately visually expressive idea. For every one of those, you get a few that just feel kind of tossed off or, you know, almost like there's a sense sometimes of, well, we haven't used one of these in a while, so I guess we should use it now. <laughs> yes, and, every, yeah. and it, that's delightful. I love it. No, yeah. no, no. It's ten out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, and that's the thing, right? Like, it's rare for me that I watch a movie that is so hard for me to make a thesis out of to tie together, which is part of why I led with the aspect ratios annoyed me <laughs> because that's kind of the closest I have to a unified <laughs> idea. But obviously, as I'm trying to express even that, I'm not like, it's not like I, I don't think there's any moments of brilliance or there's no single instance where it's genuinely evocative or funny when Lubitsch is using those things. It's so uninterested in itself as a cohesive whole that to refer to my own boy at the beginning it's a toy box you know he's just like he's just throwing toys at the screen and seeing what works and what doesn't work for later use now my question to you is Devin, because you've seen all the movies and i've seen like there's a big gap between here and i think the first few movies that i've seen is this the last one of its kind or yes. does he return to oh no oh, that's a bummer Yes, it's, this, is the la that, well, this is one thing I wanted to get at, and this is the common refrain this season, is that the late Berlin period in particular is an endless treasure trove. Sometimes the treasures suck, but it's a treasure trove of possible paths his career could have taken, right? Like, he could have easily, I mean, I the phrase I used to, to describe this film is like birthday cake German expressionism. This is, I think, the closest he ever came to like making his own cabinet of Dr. Caligari. This is just, this is what the inevitable result of that, impulse. And that's a path he could have taken. He could have continued making grotesques. He could have continued making films like The Doll. Like he could have been cinema's earliest lo-fi artist, arguably already is, with that one film. He could have, but I think even more likely, if he had had, you know, less to say in life and an order of magnitude more ambition, production-wise, he could have just continued making dire historical epics. His career could have taken so many interesting paths and it took, you know, one that obviously worked out. 
this might be the most road not taken that I'd be most interested in seeing. I don't think I need any more like dead queen stories in my life, but uh, I would love more of this. Yeah, I think the closest he gets to this kind of like explosive creative visual splendor is like having Kim wait 22 years later. And that's just such a low key movie, though. Or, you know, you know, The Merry Widow, The Merry Widow, actually. That film is yeah, just actually. bursting at the seams, but in a very different register. At least. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not a grotesque. But it's less visually opulent and over the top than Heaven Can Wait. He never does Absolute, it again. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. He never does this again. And it's kind of a bummer because I would have loved to see. I mean, I even haven't seen this type of throw it all at the screen around this era from people like Man Ray or, you know, other early avant-garde. Like even Maya Darren hasn't done stuff like this. She never worked with Paul Negri. Mm-hmm. If I were born whenever everyone was born and I was living in the 20s and going to the cinema and seeing this, my first response would be like, okay, this, but let me try some stuff out with this tool set. Let me figure out what we can do with this. And maybe, yeah, like Will said, maybe take a little longer than three movies a year trying to, you know, make an actual cohesive piece out of it. Yeah, I've I've never seen anything like it. And this is the second time, like even the doll is also very much a thing that, I mean... Nowadays, Wes Anderson comes kind of close in certain ways. Like he's definitely inspired by certain Ernst Lubitsch ticks, but not in that way. When he goes, he goes like he throws it all on the screen. He had no inhibitors at this point in his career. No. Yeah, exactly. You can see that. Yeah. <laughs> for, for, for better or worse. Wes Anderson keeps popping in my head every time I watch this movie, because I mean, even just the blocking of the actors feels so similar to what yeah. Wes is doing. I'm actually a bit surprised. I haven't been able to find any time Wes has brought up this movie. He's brought up numerous Lubitsch movies, but not this one. One thing completely random I wanted to mention before I forget is, did either of you see the most obvious body double swap in history in this? The greatest body double ever? Oh, at the, at the, at the pole? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Rewound. Where at best five foot tall Paul Negri is like replaced by the largest stunt double <laughs> I've ever seen with like chest hair pouring out everywhere. And like they look exactly like Tim Curry and Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, in any other movie, I would be like, maybe find someone who looks more like Paul Negri. But in this one, it just it's perfect. It's absolutely it feels like its own joke, even though probably it wasn't. Probably we're seeing the film in much higher quality than anyone at the era did. <laughs> Yeah, he, he does look like Tim Curry. I don't know if we are seeing it in that much higher quality. Like this is a That's this true. is definitely not a top tier print. No, but we're able to. I guess we're able to pause and and reflect yeah. on it. <laughs> you know, Fury Road has some pretty obvious body double swaps as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're all over the place in Lord of the Rings. I mean, it, this would be garden variety Hobbit wide shot, right? Quick, quickly want to mention Gemini Man, which has one of the most egregious uh, <laughs> body doubles because the whole thing is filmed in what 120 frames, you know, super oh, mega 4K, whatever. Right. So they thought they were going to get away with it, but uh, guess what? And the guy doesn't even look like Will Smith whatsoever. Like he's much younger. And also, they had so much money. To make this film and to maybe like have some VFX houses, you know, put Will Smith's face on it, which I do <laughs> think they do for a couple of shots. But most of the shots are just Angley's just like, ah, fuck it, fuck it. <laughs> you can yeah. see it. You can see the seams of my movie. I guess when you're making your film in like 12K at 120,000 frames per second, <laughs> the, the floor raises a little. Yeah. We're definitely in the waning years of, in at least large scale movies, visibly changed body double faces. Yes. Like with deep fake technology and stuff, that stuff's going away. Yeah. We got to deep fake that shot in the Wildcat. 
We got we got a deep fake oh, no. Paul Negri onto it. You know, actually, speaking of modifying the Wildcat in horribly historical ways, I have considered like doing my own fan cut of the film, which keeps mm. everything the way it is, except just hints it in the way that I think that's in keeping with like what Lubitsch was doing with like Romeo and Juliet in the Snow, or assuming that I, I have no idea if that was accurate, but I'll take it. I would love to see how this film plays if, for example, the fireworks scenes are tinted like orange, the day for night, obviously day for night scenes are tinted dark blue, you know, and what if the interior scenes and like we can actually draw like I do think one thing you could do with this film is you could draw a contrast between the color coding of the bandits and the militaristic we haven't even talked much about the specific production design, the base, which is joyous. Wild. But I wonder what you could do with that, um, whether you could give the film even like a bit more of a backbone by having some good color rhythms. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I do love the way that the cannons look. The cannons are like, they look like toothpicks yeah. or like birthday candles and a birthday cake. The way that they're just at all points, the least efficient angles for a can. Like the cannons make no sense. Part of the joke is that they make no sense, but they're lovely. Yeah. And everything is a weapon. Like everything, there's always a weapon in the frame mm -hmm. when they're in the fortress. Like ornamental swords. Exactly. Like so many ornamental weapons. One of the first scenes with, is it Lily? Yeah, I think it's Lily. Like she eats something off a gun at some point just to show like, oh, she's the daughter of the fortress commander, which I think was a very funny gag. And there's a couple of those. War is war. That was a fun gag. It's hard yes. to explain on a podcast, but if I refer to it, you can cut all this, but <laughs> it's... <laughs> I just thought it was very, it was very funny. Uh, there, there were a couple moments, and I do like that about Lewitch, where there's always a moment when I have to laugh out loud, just because it is genuinely funny, even 103 years after it's making. Because yeah, a gag, a good gag is a good gag, and the man knows how to make a good gag. That also is in the ornaments in the background. And the weird one time they use these, like, I think it's during the chase between Alexis and Rishka, where they have the stairs. Yeah. It's just like it was beautiful set and they use it once for a yeah. short chase. I was going to bring like this stuff up. like that. Yeah. It's like someone's It's just so wasteful. For... The entire film is so inefficient <laughs> in how it deploys its resources. It's incredible. Exactly. Yeah. And like exactly. if you go back and look at like, it's not just like there's all these like curves and like curls in the architecture design of the base. But like if you go and look at like these statues, there are scenes with like these incredibly elaborately designed statues right like even these seemingly simplistic canon statues in one scene at least one scene it was the only scene i noticed them in but like have these like spiral designs on their wheels and like mm -hmm. the soldiers are these extremely modernistic you know they almost look like they could be cakes yeah yeah like they're dimensionally simplistic and yet like highly expressive and extremely rounded and smooth it's so cool it's a very edible film for sure. Yeah. I should mention too that the production design is not by Hans Richter for once. It's by Ernst Stern and Max Brenner. And apparently Stern vehemently disagreed with the idea to shoot anything on location in the Alps. This should be put in context that this is the third winter Lubitsch has spent filming the Alps. Apparently he just liked it. Just would go on to the Alps once per year. I mean, he did Meyer from Berlin, which is not good. Then he did Romeo and Juliet and Kohlheisel, which are good. And then he does this. But Stern thought that the film should not feature any location footage whatsoever. And I, I kind of, having seen the film, I wonder if he wasn't right, whether it might have been interesting to just shoot this entirely on studios, interiors, all constructed, all artificial. But I wonder if, I mean, that feels like also an impulse that would have been much better a year later when they had dark studios. So who knows? No, he was right. <laughs> no, he was right. Yeah, I, I think he was, he was right. right. He was right. He was just he was right. right. It was right. They should have done that. <laughs> I think that in a vacuum, the exterior footage, I think is fine. But it's just every time I actually wrote this in my notes, every time it cuts to the bandits 
my attention flags because suddenly there's hundred less things per frame to look at, less delights. And in a film, that's kind of a, a cinema of attractions thing where I'm looking moment for moment to be delighted by little things that aren't narrative. That matters. It's very classist of you, uh, Devin. Oh, no. <laughs> You're saying I'm anti-Bavarian bandit? Yes, yes. <laughs> how, how dare you be anti-Bavarian bandit? bandit. <laughs> the sensitivity is much appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the long uh the long marginalized bandits of Bavaria. <laughs> Is there anything not related to the Wildcat that we should discuss before we end the recording? Have you guys seen this movie Napoleon? <laughs> <laughs> Have yes. you seen Napoleon? <laughs> this thing's crazy. We just had an episode on it. In fact, it was our previous episode. <laughs> this thing's unbelievable. I mean yeah, it's great. you've got the wildest, I mean, talk about your nineteen twenty-seven trailblazers. <laughs> There's stuff in this thing that you wouldn't see for decades. There's stuff in this movie I've never seen in anything else. It is something. Never heard of it. Is it Kubrick? Probably. <laughs> no, it's Spielberg now. <laughs> Probably. Oh, yeah. Fuck yes. Spielberg is executive producing one. Yeah. And by the time this episode uh, comes out, I filmed it. Uh, no, that, I'll believe that when I see when I see a trailer for that one, I'll believe it. Okay, so Will, let's make a bet right here on the air, right now. What comes out first, Spielberg's Napoleon or the French Cinematheque's new restoration of the Abelgans film Napoleon? (laughs) What comes out first? Oh, shit. Uh, You get layer cards on the table. We're doing it. Packed. I don't believe in either of them, but I guess I'm going to go with the Cinematheque. I'm also going to bet the Cinematheque. What do you think, Brom? For the sake of contrarianism, I am going for the Kubrick scripted Spielberg executive produced, <laughs> uh, directed by that guy from True Detective, who hasn't Is who hasn't done much that? since. Yeah, he's he's gonna direct the whole thing. That's he's still uh, the guy. Also, is this thing is this thing really Kubrick scripted? Like being I serious for a second, I, they're going to use his notes. That's it. Like so, Kubrick is going to be like um, a researcher, fifth credited researcher. There's been like five attempts to get this thing off the ground. I'm sure it's been ship of Theseus to hell and back. Also, there is going to be a Ridley Scott Napoleon film coming out this year. So, like, oh, what are we talking yeah. about? Wait, is that the one where he got like Paul Gross or whoever to play? No, no, <laughs> no Joaquin Phoenix. Right, Joaquin Phoenix. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I have no idea. How this yeah. that's a he can't keep getting away with this thing. That guy's movies don't make money. Yeah, another <laughs> I mean, it is very he's made money. Sorry, like House of Gucci made twice its budget. Like, I don't know what you're talking about, Will. Talking out of your ass. That's a loss. <laughs> that is ten that is a loss. Hollywood accounting says that's a loss. Uh, that's a good point. Last duel lost 70. Oh boy. So let's wrap up the recording, everyone. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess we should hit pause. So I'm gonna say um it's been great talking about the most chaotic Lubitsch film with the two most chaotic people I know. Not really. Thanks so much for giving this film the time of day. It's been a long, dry desert of historical and mythic epics, and we're about to get one more, even though the next one, I promise you listeners, is a ton of fun if you let it be. So <laughs> It is fun. I do know it's fun if you let it be is not the best. You just say it's fun. But it can also <laughs> say, listeners, sit down with Loves of the Pharaoh. Keep your eyes and ears open and the fun will come to you. Just don't treat it like it's a melodrama, even though it looks like one and acts like one and walks like a duck and talks like a duck. It's not a duck. It's a goofy, grotesque, you might call it, starring listeners, If rather than thinking this is a melodrama, about- if rather than thinking this is a melodrama, you simply open your mouth and say, ha ha, you will have fun. <laughs> exactly. And... <laughs> Who am I? Like, 
When is that not uh-huh. a good idea? Name a single movie where you shouldn't laugh throughout in a public theater. I can't find one. So thanks both of you. And Shinda's list. And yeah, everyone knows you, so you don't have to tell them where to find them. You go look at the FN show notes, listeners. You dinkuses. I'm down with that. Thanks so much, both of you. And I'm going to get you both saying see you later or whatever so I can enter it in. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> that was terrible. Okay, I'm going to hit stop. <laughs> Me too. Next week, Kirsten Thompson joins us to discuss The Loves of the Pharaoh. Griffin Scheel was our dialogue editor for this episode. Head over to www.ernstcast.com for links to the various public domain films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast service you happen to use. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. 